Welcome to Garablo Hardened of Horns, a third wave ska retrospective. I am Elaine, and with me... I am Fletcher. And I'm Adam. Also, this is actually gonna get out of this town, a pop punk and emo pop retrospective, but I figured I would fancy it up a bit for the intro, because we reached our first ska record. Finally. There's not enough of these, because, God, this was such a breath of fresh air. It was a good record, so... What is this podcast? This podcast is us going through every single pop-punk and emo-pop record that charted on Billboard from 1999 to 2013. We are currently in the year 2000. The best year. Yeah, and by that I mean no. Today we are going to talk about the Mighty Mighty Boss Stones and the 2000 record, Pay Attention. The record right after the record that everyone knows from them. So, did any of you have any prior experience with this? Nope. This record? No. With the Mighty Mighty Bostons in general? I'm, I'm assuming everyone knows, like, the big song. Yeah. Nope. I was very much alive in the 90s, so I definitely remember that <laughs> period. And, uh, yeah, they were one of a few bands that was my introduction to ska. When I was younger, I was incredibly not a fan of ska and... There's still a particular flavor I don't like, but as I get older and I appreciate horns more, it's a genre that definitely appeals to me. Yeah, especially like at the time, you have sort of like the um, real big fish tangent of ska, which is more like bro-y in a way. Mm-hmm. And then you have like people like the Mighty Mighty Boston, so the Suicide Machines were very much like more rooted in the like more political hardcore scene of the times. So it's interesting. Also, the specials suck. The special. The specials were a ska band you would hear a lot of around here when I was growing up. They were more 80s, like they were not of this time, but they were another thing that contributed to my not being a fan of the genre. Understandable. Yeah, I, I, I've never been into ska as a genre, like I was never like, because, you know, that was sort of after my time, but I, I, I did really like, like, um, madness like when i was a kid like i had a bunch of the records and that led me into also knowing about some of the more recent stuff like the mighty mighty bostons i never listened to a full record by the bostons until now same so that's, this was interesting also yeah uh madness is an act who has grown on me over the years i still don't know exactly what scott is but i like horns Short version, generally a lot of brassy instruments, heavy pace to it, and a bit of Jamaican dancehall as its roots. Oh, I like ska then. Yeah, it originates as a mix of uh, reggae and punk, nominally, but every subsequent ska wave moves it like further from that origin. Like, I would say that stuff like the Mighty Mighty Bostons doesn't have much to do with reggae anymore. But anyhow, we're talking about a 90s ska band. The Mighty Mighty Bostons. Yep, the Mighty Mighty Bostons, who moved into 2000 
with the dragon pay attention. What are we paying attention to? A history of the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. to go quickly through this because of the fact that the boss tones have a history going back to the 80s and after the bad religion arc we're not doing that again i can't imagine why i like how you say the bad religion arc as it was like one of our seasons of wholly dedicated to the bad religion it it was over half of that episode was the history <laughs> <laughs> to be fair the record was pretty sucky so we didn't want to talk about it much yeah, we did also just kind of skate through it, but still. Um, generally, the boss tones have had an incredibly consistent sound. If you recall their singles from the 90s, you know whether you want to hear more of that. You know, there's There's been a little bit of change in production over time, but you pretty much get the boss tones every time you put on one of their albums. So the only albums are a bit more rooted in punk... This album still has some other bits, but it's more sort of hard rock oriented rather than punk. But yeah, again, like you can, once you listen to all of the records in a row, you can hear some nuance between them that changes. But at this core, if you like this record, if you like that single, you would pretty much like their whole stuff, their whole discography. It's, you know, it's that sound. Sounds good to me. Please don't blow us up. Uh, long-term Boss Tones fans, we are but tourists in this catalog, and so going through at a glance, everything does have a very similar vibe. It, it does. Sometimes that's just what you need, though. Oh, no, absolutely. This, this is not a critique. I listened through... I didn't listen to all of the records, but I listened to a bunch of the records, and I enjoyed them all fairly well. They're all good. And I think all of us have said coming into this, uh, we enjoyed this album. So clearly we enjoy Boss Tone sound. Mm-hmm. This is good. This is one of the better that we covered today. Uh, well, today. This is, it is one of the better that we covered today, technically. This is the best album I've talked about on a recording today. <laughs> but it's also one of the best that we covered on the podcast. Yeah. And to Ellie's great delight, this band is from Boston, not California. Yay! Oh my gosh. We got out of California. <laughs> Are they going to end up in L.A. by the end of this? I haven't checked. I will not check. Actually, actually, I think the singer currently lives in California. So, yes, from an interview. Ha ha. And that means that, like most of us, right now he is regretting life. (laughs) Oh, God. I mean... We're recording this the week where the entire west coast of the U.S. is a smoggy, ashen mess. I I keep meaning to ask you, Fletch, (laughs) how close is the fire to where you live? Enough that we couldn't see the sun for multiple days. Mm, Yeah, I feel that. I'm near the tail end of it, but the new job that I'm seeking is in the path of our closest flames. So, that's fun. Uh... (laughs) If I went through 13-hour days for two and a half weeks only to have this company burn down before I start, I am going to murder someone. (laughs) I mean, 
I'd suggest that you uh, uh, burn something down, but uh, might not be the best reaction in this. No, not in California in the summer. No. <laughs> not, not now. <laughs> What's left to burn? Look, if you want to commit act of uh, public destruction, you just have to adapt. You know, take a cue from Batman, from the Mr. Freeze thing, just build an ice gun, and then you can destroy public property or private property in case of whatever, whoever you want to attack without contributing to the overall, like, environmental crisis of the place. Okay, as an Irish guy, if you gave me Mr. Freeze's gun, we would live in an igloo. This globe <laughs> would be a frost cube. God, please, please, please. I thrive in snow and chilly temperatures. I was locked out of a cabin one time in the snow, buck-ass naked, and was pretty comfortable for about an hour until someone else woke up. <laughs> I was also much younger at that point. That's not a thing I want to do these days. Anyway, this is not a weather review podcast. Yeah, welcome to Gotta Get Out of This Weather segment. <laughs> about the podcast that we're currently on the Bostons they originate from Boston around Boston really all of the members are sort of around Boston but you know it's that thing where you know if you're all around Boston you're from Boston technically and they come from basically various bands in the 80s hardcore scene of the local areas uh, bands like Gangrene or the Cheapskate the Cheapskates aren't bad I recall a couple of singles. Most of the founding members of the band basically knew each other through the scene. Some of them were still in high school when they formed the band. And eventually in 83, they decide to form the first iteration of what will become the Mighty Mighty Bostones, which originally was only named the Bostones, which is a pun on the city, of course. Gasp. I didn't know that it was a pun on the city. I thought it was like a, just a word, and I discovered that today. You know, it makes more sense as a single word as opposed to part of a very bombastic title. Yeah. The members of the band sort of changed throughout the years. Not a lot, but there are a lot of... This is a band, so there are like a lot of members in the band and a lot of them change. So I won't go through all of the changes because we don't have time with that. But the four founding member who remain a constant throughout the years and are still in the band today are the bassist Joe Gittleman, the drummer Johnny Vegas, whose real name is Tim Burton, not to be confused with the director, the dancer, and yeah, I said dancer, there's a person in the band who just dances on stage, Ben Carr, and the singer Dickie Barrett, who you would most likely know nowadays for being the announcer on the Jimmy Kimmel show, which is a thing that I read from his biography, but I don't know what a Jimmy Kimmel is, I'll be honest. So I'm going to ask the two Americans here. Okay, I can actually answer that. 
Is a Jimmy Kimmel the same thing as a Jimmy Fallon? No, a Jimmy Fallon is a very big step down from a Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> Noted. Um, Jimmy Kimmel is an older gentleman who is, you know, a guy who had a lot of history around the rougher, bro side of comedy, and as he has matured, has become a, a lot more of a thoughtful comedian who's also willing to poke a lot of fun at himself and has the connections to really enjoy himself these days. I think he's one of the better late-night hosts, partly because he's not afraid to be the sort of person who will just go off in the middle of an interview and tell a guest that they can go fuck themselves. Hmm. Why does he have an announcer? So... Most late-night shows do have an announcer. There will generally be a house band, but in some cases, Saturday Night Live is a big case of this. Don Pardo was the one who announced your musical guests for years. Anyway, uh, one of the former cast members now does the announcing in place of the deceased Don Pardo, and he doesn't do anything on the show. He just shows up, does the introductory voice, and then hands it off. That's it. Dream job. But yeah, as for what a Jimmy Fallon is, terrible. I only know of a thing named Jimmy Fallon existing because there's a, there's a Japanese breakfast song named Jimmy Fallon Big, which is about their ex-bassist who came back for the Japanese breakfast record. I only know about it because of the ice cream. Wow. It's named Jimmy Fallon Big because their bassist left their first band to go into another band who was gonna be quote-unquote Jimmy Fallon Big and then came back... After that band wasn't Jimmy Fallon big. That's incredibly funny to me because since 2016, Jimmy Fallon has been the cratering guy in Late Night. He's been falling down the ratings amongst anyone who's in that field. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Rip him. Uh, it couldn't happen to a nicer shithead. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those things that's informed by knowing people who work in and around the city, but Jimmy Fallon is a notorious drunk who has to be covered up for by NBC and is generally seen on a bender with handlers when he's not doing his show. Ew. Real schmuck. Ben Carr, on the other hand, that dancer, was originally a roadie for the band until one night they were playing at a bar while being high school students, and he was told that he couldn't come in to see the show unless he was in the band, meaning on the stage and not somewhere that he might be served liquor. So the band brought him on stage, and as a result, he became a regular part of the band's shows. I, I just love the concept that there's just a guy who dances in their show. That is a very ska concept, to be fair. Ska is a genre where someone can play the drumsticks. <laughs> That's not a joke. I mean, we know it's not, but it's funny to think about. Anyhow, this was the genesis of the band. After having played together for a couple of years, really, while in high school and being fairly young, the band starts recording some songs. Their initial sound was actually, as we mentioned, pretty similar to what we got later on, and what they still play to this day. 
they were sort of pioneers of the whole ska core thing, mixing hardcore punk riffs and ska stuff. Dickie Barrett was actually, like, they all come from really the hardcore scene, but Dickie Barrett was a big fan of uh, British two-tone ska and decided to bring in a lot of the horn stuff, a lot of the musical ideas from that genre. And that created a really interesting blend with these heavy hardcore riffs over upbeat ska tunes. I personally prefer what the Suicide Machine did with the genre uh, about five to six years later, making it more heavier, more rooted in hardcore punk, more shouty, a lot harder, making those hardcore influences very, very like prominent. Uh, I've been really listening a lot of the older Suicide Machine stuff lately. They they have some really good records in the discography. But, you know, the the Mighty Bostons are sort of the progenitor of the stuff. They did it way before anyone else. It's like they say, sometimes you gotta have a Joy Division to get a new order. I am glad we're both on New Order was better than Joy Division team, though. You know, I do think that by and large, but... I also think a couple of Joy Division tracks are more iconic than anything New Order did. Absolutely, but as an overall band and general sound, I'm more of a New Order person than a Joy Division person. Wholeheartedly agree. By 88, though, the Boss Tones, the band that we keep getting distracted from, can you tell we are a little bit uh, loopy and out of sorts by switching things up? It's the smoke. They were starting to gather... A bit of buzz, and, you know, a lot of ska and punk underground compilations were featuring them. But some of the band had to finish graduating high school. So they took a few years off, and around the turn of the decade, they changed their name to the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones in order to avoid confusion, read lawsuits, with the 1950s acapella group named The Boss Tones. In 1990, the band records their first LP under the Tang label, and the record is named Devil's Night Out. Fairly good. Again, blend of hardcore guitar and poppy ska ideas. I think this is where they really cement that sound that will influence everyone later. Is there any fiddle? You can't have an album called The Devil's Night Out and not have there be any fiddle. I do not think there is any fiddle on this record disappointment also i did do a very quick bit of diving into tang records and i feel we need to talk about this for a second their very strange name is an acronym for the phrase teenagers are no good which is why there's two a's (laughs) okay they kicked off in boston signing a lot of early hardcore and punk bands like gangrene as we mentioned the boss tones the lemonheads would later come with them And by the time they're being signed, this is probably what might have dragged them out towards my state. The label decided, well, SoCal has a punk scene. Let's move our headquarters to San Diego, where it is to this day. Like everything in this podcast, eventually you'd move to California. All roads lead to Los Angeles. Good news, Ellie. It turns out that thanks to all the devastation currently, there's going to be a lot of frontier. So if you want to come out here and settle some of that land, you've got a chance. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Just, you know, bring your gas mask. Yeah, um, bring two different types of masks. You're going to need one for virus and one for fire. 
Yeah, it's gonna be like that great video game stalker. Will California eventually also have you like clip through walls in real life like stalker? If you ever give me the ability to start glitch walking through things, uh, California is fucked. More fucked? Oh, we can get more fucked. Let me show you more fucked. Devil's Night Out doesn't get much acclaim, both in terms of profits or critics, but Sky was still an underground genre, even by the standards of the punk subgenres, and their style didn't really fit anywhere. It was hardcore, but not hardcore, and it was still way too aggressive for the burgeoning ska scene, so they're kind of neither fish nor fowl. Their next release is an EP of covers, including what Ellie tells us is a terrible Enter Sandman. Yeah, apparently they Metallica liked it and they played it together on stage at some point. I don't like that cover. I think the Boston's cover game is way weaker than Goldfinger's cover game. I, I don't think their covers are that great, but, you know, Metallica liked it. You know, sometimes that's all you can hope for is, did the people who made this song enjoy what we did with it? Yeah. And in 1992, their second record came out, More Noise and Other Disturbance, which uh, there's more clean guitar tone on the record. The first record is just like straight up, every song goes fairly hard. On the second record, they start pioneering a mix of things, which will carry through a lot of records. There are some songs which have like hard... Hardcore riffs and some songs which have, you know, cleaner guitar tones or just ska rhythms. It's it's more polished. Uh, I think overall, Devil's Night Out is more iconic as a record, like in their discography. But the second record is also fine. In between the EP and more noise, a bunch of the members of the band are switched around. But as always, the founding core that we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast remains pretty much the same. The same for members. I just don't understand this standoff. There's a lot I don't understand. Well, one men don't have to be. Well, I don't know of him. I only know this is killing me. In 1993, the Bostones abandon Tang and go to the Majors, signing with Mercury Records. They record a few cover EPs, which we're going to just start seeing more of that as we go through this. And we're not even in the age of uh, the whole punk ghost pop compilation, which were in the early 2010, late 2000s. Those were big. I do remember those. 
Some of the songs still hold up. I like Captain Shank cover of All Star. Before All Star was a meme, that was just like a genuine cover of the song. So yes, uh, multiple cover projects, including, I'm gonna have to look this one up, the Boss Tones helping a tribute album to Kiss. That's... Sad face. I can see how the Boss Tones would do a cover of Enter Sandman in my head. I can visualize that. I can't imagine the Boss Tones covering a Kiss track. What would that sound like? That's wildly divergent genres. This all leads up to the release around the same year, again, 93, of their third record, Don't Know How to Party. The single Someday I Suppose gets a minor radio and TV push, leading to another record the next year, Question the Answers. They will even get their own imprint, Big Big Records, mostly used to put things out in vinyl form. However, this is where they begin to become a known quantity, because their videos are getting played on MTV, and soundtracks, that thing that would really break you in the 90s, are a huge driver with the success of Clueless. I always get Clueless confused with uh, Mean Girls in my brain, I don't know why. It's the same movie. <laughs> yeah, they are basically just a generation-removed version of the same skeleton. Legally Blonde, also in the same genre, except it's aiming a little higher for college students. I like that one, though. In 1997, after being featured on the Warp Tour for two years in a row, and to add the Boston's Hometown Throwdown, which is an end-of-the-year show for three years in a row, the band finally gets their big break. After the rising success of Someday, I suppose, and being on Clueless, they actually get a big hit single with their fifth record, Let's Face It. And the single is the impression that I get, that I'm gonna assume everyone knows that was a big song at the time, it's a good song. If you don't know it, go listen to it. It's good. It becomes a hit. Alright, time to go listen to that, I guess. Arrives at 23 on the airplay charts and holds the number one on the alternative charts for, like, a long time. The song is great. Uh, it has actually really cool lyrics about analyzing your own privilege, which is weird for a ska song that goes pop big in the in the 90s, but, yeah, way more interesting than anything, like, Real Big Fish ever wrote, I'll be honest. Oh, you don't think that Real Big Fish's hits about partying down, and also maybe some makeouts were revolutionary? <laughs> yeah, no. Not really. Not um, really? I mean, you gotta have a lot of skill and talent to make makeouts revolutionary, my dude. <laughs> Look, it worked in Utena. I don't think, I don't think Real Big Fish is on that level. Anyhow, after the big hit that is the impression that I get, the band keeps touring. At this point, they've basically been touring for, like, years straight. Obviously, the pace of touring increases after their success, and they also keep releasing, you know, songs for compilations and for some side projects, but this time it's mostly touring. I guess this is a good place to mention that, from what I've gathered through my research, the Mighty Mighty Bostons are actually really, really solid politically. They didn't murder any homeless dudes? <laughs> they didn't murder any homeless dudes, which is... Point one. Point two is that, as I mentioned, the impression that I get has actually, like, very interesting lyrics about social issues, which are, you know, packaged in a fun pop way, but it's actually more thoughtful than you'd imagine. 
their original colorful plate attires that you can see if you search them on on any search engine. It was originally a variation on the checkerboard used by Teutons, which in Teutons cut the checkerboard pattern was used to signify racial unity. And quoting the Mighty Mighty Boston from an interview, uh, they kind of thought the word was a little bit more colorful than just two colors. So they wanted to represent everyone. And that's why they had like colorful checkerboard, like played outfit when they started, which is, again, that's pretty cool. Uh, and especially during these tours between 99 and 2000, they brought through all of their tour uh, anti-racist action to their shows to distribute literature about how to like without fascist recruiters in punk, Nazi punks, quote unquote, which is, again, it's really cool. Like go read their interview. They are, they seem extremely like intelligent persons with very solid political views and bringing anti-racist action to your shows to without the fascist scam is thumbs up from me. That's great shit. Finally, a band that I don't have to hate on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Bad Religion's good. They are, but that album wasn't as good, so like it didn't stand out as much to me. The Suicide Machines are also really solid politically, but the record that we talked about, The Suicide Machines, was really bad. Yeah. Anyway, I'm looking forward to when we get to the process of belief so I can finally get you guys to believe that Bad Religion have talent. <laughs> <laughs> Someday. But yeah, this is pretty much it. They tour a bunch from 1997 to 1999, and in 1999 they go back into the recording booth, ready to work on Pay Attention. They have all of the momentum in the world. The impression that I get was huge. Let's see what they can do. And um, that title is a little ironic because by 2000, just like the Swing Revival, the Ska Revival has fallen out of any popular culture. We already mentioned that Goldfinger had their not-so-hot record a little before this, and Pay Attention kind of does the same nosedive. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about why Ska fell off so... So rapidly, I think there's a lot of people who like to like think a lot about pop trends. I personally think that like pop trends are just very fickle. Ska will be a trend for like three years because that's just what happens. And then it isn't because that's also what happens. For what it's worth, I think there's a very much, uh, you know, a straight line from Ska having this small revival to pop punk then becoming a thing in the early 2000s. You know, they're both, like, very upbeat genre, very, like, uplifting genre with, like, simple melodies and, like, you know, fun tone. And pop-punk will sort of win out, I think, mostly because the horns are good, but they're sort of weird sometimes. The ska rhythms are sort of weird for, like... No. Adam, I'm not not talking about personal preference, but they are, you know, they're, it, it, it feels, like, a bit too quirky to have like mainstay in pop culture while pop punk was simpler and eventually got very produced and very very poppy which makes sense why one of them 
stayed for a lot longer than the other one. You mean the poppy one is going to be popular with the pop market? Yeah, th- thanks for lampshading my dumb, my dumb words. Well, how's this? Pop punk is, and I say this not to be crude, but I'm going to say it very bluntly, pop punk was boy bands for people who didn't want to seem gay by enjoying the Backstreet Boys. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I don't know about the second part, but it, especially during the, la- the latter half of pop punk, there was definitely like a very boy bandish vibe uh, to, the, to the pop punk genre. Slick production, formulaic, that's where it ends up because capitalism chews up and spits out the concept and decides to make it as marketable as possible. Absolutely. Specifically, like, this is 2000. Like, this is the pop punk that we're covering, the 2000 pop punk, I think. Yeah, this is when we're starting to really get that machine going into gear. Yeah. And honestly, it's very easy to put it in a negative way. Pop is fine. I'm gonna say a bold statement here. I feel like all of us enjoy some pop music. Yeah, like, very produced, like, you know, mainstream pop is can be really good, can be fine. I don't think, the, I, I'm not one of the person who's like, ooh, they have a producer. No, it's fine, pop, pop, pop is great. And that's why we have a podcast about pop punk. Anyone who tells you that they cannot stand pop music or like find someone in the zeitgeist they enjoy... Is lying. How do I phrase this in a way that is less abrasive than what I was about to say? Um, is someone who is trying too hard to impress a ghost in their head and you should pay them no mind. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Anyhow, talking about the uh, Mighty Mighty Bustons, pay attention, charts poorly. It stays four weeks on the top 200, and that's why we're talking about it, but it immediately falls off. It tops at 75, and we're talking 75 as in... Blink-182's Enema of the State was charting higher in the same week, and blink was Enema of the State was released a year before. So, you know, that's not, not an index of commercial success. Sad to say, the only single from the record gets a minor MTV airplay, but doesn't chart anywhere. It stays around like three weeks on the alternative chart, but not even there has staying power. So, commercially, this record is sort of a failure for the Mighty Mighty Bostons. By the way, if you wanted to know what was ruling the chart during those months, it was, I think, like either one or two months in a row that NSYNC single Bye 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 was stopping the chart from No Strings Attached, which is their big, like, fuck you to Lou Perlman after the whole litigation with their band rights. So, that was the pop scene at the time. Not many horns, a lot of thumping, you know, Max Martin production. As a final note, before we delve into the record, the producer on this record is Paul Q. Calderi, which is just a long-time collaborator of the band, produced a lot of the records, and produced a bunch of stuff from the Lemonheads, just like, you know, pretty much a producer from that scene at the time. And with that, we may as well start diving into the track by track. I must 
and the record starts with Let Me Be, which is very much an intro. This record has a very good sense of flow, I think. It's a very long record, I think it could used to be a bit shorter, but it's very well structured. And this song is the typical example of a song that on its own is not amazing, but it works well as an intro to the record. It's, it's very, it's very like introducing you to, to the themes and the musical ideas of the record. I really liked the song. I had fun. It's not got the energy of some of the later stuff. This is very much an intro track. But as a warm-up, we have started with way worse things on this journey. It's not politically correct. Yeah. You, uh, yeah. Yeah. Why would you remind me of that? <laughs> to, you know, just really drive home the difference that, like, this is pretty good. Yeah, SR-71 starts the record with, let us say, the N-word. While the Mighty Mighty Boston starts the record with a very solid, like, hard rocky ska track with cool punk riffs. The phrase that came to mind while I was doing the re-listen for this is that let Me Be sounds like the song that would open a Shrek movie while you're seeing how our characters have been doing since we last checked in. <laughs> you are correct. I have no comments on that, but okay. It's, it's not bad, but like, you got a lot of Smash Mouth. You got a lot of very similar artists for those opening scenes where it's just like, Here's what's going on in the swamp. Here's what's going on in the castle. It's something that fades into the background, but has an energy and has a little bit of rebellious spirit, because this ain't your grandfather's fairy tale. <laughs> sure. That's what Let Me Be is. This is one of the tracks with the best guitar work. I think the guitar works is sort of a weak point on the rest of the record, but here has, the guitars have a lot of energy and sound very good. There are very, like, bad religion-y, whoa, bits on the song, which was always fun. Do you enjoy me some woes? Also, to note, we haven't really talked about The Elephant in the Room, which is Dickie Barrett's voice, which is, like, this very gravely gritty, like, sort of, like weird voice which i love it gives like a very unique feel to this music 10 out of 10 yeah might not be everyone's cup of tea because again it's like very like someone who just smoked like three packs of cigarettes and then started singing but sounds great <laughs> yeah i mean the standards for vocalists is low on this podcast I would definitely say that he's got a good voice for what he's going for. You can tell he came out of the hardcore scene. You say it's a smoker voice. I say it's a guy who spent his teens and 20s yelling without any precautions. And this is what I ended up as. Yeah, but it gives it like, you know, it's not good in the classic sense of like technically good, but it gives it like a very unique feel and it's perfect for the style and the lyrics that this record goes for. His voice has a texture to it, which is not something you can say for a lot of the people. When we just discussed, this is a genre that's becoming very machined, very focus grouped. This stands out for that, and I love it. And yeah, this is a good intro. And then we move into the skeleton song. One day my skeletons appeared, and I knew where they were 
So my take on this is that this is trying to be impression that I get version two. Then might very well be. It's the track that reminded me the most of their big hit single. And as a result, I kind of struggled to think of anything else about it. I just started humming. (laughs) Yeah, like it goes from the like heavy riffs of the first song into like less punk song. It's like there's still some guitar, but it's more straight up a pop song with horns. Has like this catchy chorus. It's not one of the best cuts of the record, but you know, it's listenable. Uh, the mixing is a bit muddy. The production, honestly, I don't think it's great on this record. There's nothing too bad, but nothing that stands out production-wise. And I think especially the guitars are not mixed super well on this record. But, you know, the tune sort of supports it. And I think this is like this is like a middling track. I, I would agree that it's very not the impression that I get. But... Eh, it's listenable. I had a lot of fun with it, but I can't think of anything to say. Yeah. It's about facing your past mistakes and becoming a better person. I like the morals of this song. We've been starved of meaningful content, or at least I have. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, uh, again, these people are lyrically solid. Again, we don't have a lot of bands so far who've been around since the 80s consistently. And... That gives them a leg up over a lot of these Johnny-come-latelys who might not have even been born in the era. The reason why this band doesn't need to be told to put on their big boy pants when they're writing music is because they already have them and have had them since at least the 90s. And they have been at this long enough that they don't have to start playing the Yeah, I'm still so young and cool and hip, let me tell you about accidentally sleeping with a cheerleader. It's like, no, no, you, you're you not here for that. You're either here for the sound and what we're doing, or you have 70 other bands that we're not going to compete with in this space for that. So we move to the next song, which is Whole Thing Considered, which is sort of a story song, which there are a couple on this record. There's a guy that comes around from time to time. We're sure that he fought in the war, the war in Vietnam. Most of what he tells us, no one's verified. He swears that he was there the day that Brandon Bean died. He also claims he trained a kid named Cassius Clay. He cost the water the election on election day. If he was still with us today, that he would introduce us to his closest friend, the one and only Lenny Bruce. All things considered, reminded me very much of some of No Doubts middle of the decade work when they were still transitioning out of their ska phase into alt rock yeah it's like a very like poppy take on ska like you know again like the impression that i get and so on and so on it's like but it has more of a it has more of a push to it it's still got that root skeleton song was kind of lacking there this one has character it's fun has like a truly pleasant chorus well written. The lyrics are weird. They're about like, you know, an old Vietnam veteran telling stories that who knows if they're true or not. Probably not. With the moral of, you know, he might be bullshitting us, but it's not hurting anyone. So it's cool. Yeah, and that's... Hmm. That's the sort of thing that at the time I would have been, oh yeah, that's harmless. And now I look at 2020, ruiner of everything. (laughs) 
It really depends on what the bullshitting stories were. Yeah, no, the bullshitting stories described in this particular song are innocuous. Like, he claims that he trained Cassius Clay or whatever. Yeah. And he's just like, yeah, whatever. Also, just throwing this out there, if you're an old dude who still refers to him as Cassius Clay, fuck off. Well, well I, I don't know any don't any know background of this thing. That was Muhammad Ali. Yeah, if you're calling him Cassius Clay rather than the name he changed to out of some spite because he converted, uh, eat shit. Yeah, that's fair. Oh, yeah, no, agreed. That's fair. That was the point I was going for, yeah. Now that I have context, yes. I'll be honest, I don't know boxing, and I don't know a lot of pop culture regarding around it, so I didn't know those were the same person. You mean wrestling and boxing aren't the same thing? (laughs) So I didn't know that was a real thing until his death recently, when a lot of the worst people were saying, rest in peace, Cassius Clay, and it's like, oh, what the fuck? (laughs) Okay. You have automatically lost the right to say that. So yeah, that that was why that specific one kind of set me off in the lyrics. But like I said, this is a song that would be perfectly harmless at the time, but now does have slightly more ominous connotations in the era of, well, just let them believe what they believe. No, this is how we got to cue shit. Yeah, yeah. Leave the 2000 in their innocence. For this one, I'm going to say we're going to leave the 2000 in their innocence because this song is fun and I don't... It is. It is. It's a good song. I enjoy it. I just find the message a little underwhelming because I saw where it got us. Yeah, that's fair. Wah, wah. It's very fair. It's pretty catchy, though. Yeah. The, the chorus is great. There is a... Great, great, great instrumental bridge where the horns really shine. I'm going to say it, the horn section of the Mighty Mighty Bostons is like a couple of spans above most of their contemporary in the genre. I think there's great, great works on the horn. Not technically, of course, this is still, you know, fairly simple ska, but that's very just like very creative, very like well played, very energy charged, like brass playing on this tracks. Entirely understand, and uh, yeah, and then we get to the single. On to the next. This is a, this is a fun one. It's it's again not the worst on the album. Really, I don't know what I would call the worst on the album because I would have to pick something as unambiguously bad. I think that's a track that I don't particularly enjoy, but we'll get there. Yeah, but overall, there's solid songs and good songs. There's nothing nothing that I would call bad on this thing. I wouldn't have picked this as the single. That's what I was thinking. Ah, I think it works as a single. I think it's very catchy. It's probably one of the catchiest songs in the record. Maybe it's just my taste. I probably would have gone High School Dance. That song is really good. Yeah. I think this being the single probably didn't help sell this record. I can see why a Mercury executive would choose this as a single. I'm put it this way. 
That's true. I think High School Dance is a really good song, and I think it would have been very interesting as a single. I think this feels more like a safe bet, right? This is a breakup song, this is catchy, this is not about anything too weird. So yeah, I think also the 2000s weren't particularly ready for a breakup song that's like not bitter and not like angry, that it's literally like, this is sad, but it's okay. It happens. Yeah. Again, this is definitely that same thing we were talking about with the, these are guys who've gotten past the teenage immaturity phase in their songs. Yep. I don't I, I like this song. The song is yeah. good. It's catchy. I, again, lyrically, I'm always love, especially like in this podcast where a lot of the breakup songs are just like, uh, you're a bitch. Blah, 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 blah. By the way, I fucked your mom. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I always appreciate a breakup song that treats the subject much maturely, which this does. Mm-hmm. The horn accents on the chorus are wonderful. I think this song has a bit less horns than a lot of the other stuff on this record, but there are those like accented the horns do on the chorus that again reminds you that the brass section here is like top notch. And yeah, it's good. It's okay. Fun. Mm-hmm. But I can see why it did not catch on though, because as you mentioned, it's not. It's not the best song on this record, and it's not quite pop level of catchy. The impression that I get had a smashing chorus. This has an okay chorus. It's not... The accents are more interesting than the melodic work. Let's just say that. Yeah, I think you needed to go, if you're only getting the one single, with something that leans harder, and this is a track that is safe on every level. Yeah, that's fair. Because they have stuff that's more maudlin but carries it and they have stuff that's more energetic if you want to go for the upbeat yeah this uh, yeah i think i agree with you this was a very safe record safe single and it's probably why you didn't bring in anyone who wasn't already on board with a boss tone sound yeah yeah and after the single we go to allow them It's a hard rock that moves into a weirdly atonal verse into like a ska chorus, which is already interesting structurally. Also, this is a song about capitalism will eventually eat itself. Mm. So I was not expecting that before reading about this dude's politics. Surprise! And it's not in the upbeat method of a pop will eat itself. It's in the method of let the scavengers feed on each other's corpses, stay out of their way. Yep. Yep. It's pretty visceral. Pretty good. The the lines that stuck with me is, uh, failure has too many fathers, succeed and you're an orphan till you die. I, I love, and it's such a weird turn of phrase, but it did stick with me. It's such a cold, cold, hoary place. place. That one stuck with me too. The lyrics as written do not say hoary, H-O-A-R-Y. They say whore with a Y. Yep. I, I don't know if that's just genius or if it's that... Uh... 
I saw it mentioned in a few places, but I also know these sites auto-populate one another, and it's really hard to find these liner notes these days in some digital form scanned, so... Yeah. I'm just gonna trust it, given the message of the song. Yeah, no, it makes sense. But yeah, uh, allow them. This is a thing that would never be allowed as a single, for some language reasons, especially if those uh, lyrics are correct, but, you know, it's very much a good insight into the fact that this band is a cut above who they're dealing with in their genre. Yeah. It's, I I don't think this musically is the best on the record, but I think the lyrics sort of like fill that gap and make it really good. I think, again, it's like, it's a weird song musically, right? Because it's like these three different sections that don't really gel together, but somehow work. And also here we start seeing that this record specifically is way more sort of hard rock influenced than punk influenced. Like, especially that riff at the beginning or the um, horns basically playing hard rock riffs just with horns are all things that will keep throughout the record. And they are sort of like the main difference, I feel, between the previous record, which had some more punky songs and so on. Let's put it this way. The opening to this track is why when you told me the boss tones have covered Metallica, I went, yeah, I know what that would sound like. Yeah. No, okay, that's fair. It tracks. Nothing in their catalog makes me think, yeah, the boss tones would cover Kiss. The cockroach we're describing in this song is Gene Simmons. Gene Simmons is the avatar of capitalism that we would hope <laughs> eats itself. Yeah. 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 That man is corporate sellout sleaze weaponized. <laughs> Gene Simmons is a revulsive individual on almost every level of his politics and actions. Despite not knowing any Kiss songs, I still don't like them, just because I know this. So, there's a single thing I will give to Gene Simmons. Hmm? Which is that he has enforced, at least by all stories and accounts, a no-drugs policy on the band, and one of the dudes who was kicked out was because he could not stay clean, and that's how they lost one of their founding members. That's about all I will ever give you on Gene Simmons' account. So let's turn from that to a much better topic, high school dance. Oh boy. I love to make them dance. This song is fantastic. Yeah! I love this song. It's fun. It's like, lyrically so simple, you know, you'll dodge on me, but I made it, and fuck you to all the people who are shitty to me in the past, but has like the fucking super iconic line of I'm your fucked up dance instructor and you're here for your lesson, which is a great chorus line. The chorus is fun. The gravelly voice of uh, Dicky give really gives it, like, gravitas. Like, again, it's the thing where it's a bunch of sort of unrelated sections alternating each other, but it works somehow. This song is great. And this is another song that 
we can look at stuff we've already covered for the show and see how someone who was less mature would do this track. This would be a fuck you, I'm famous now from so many of these other bands. Instead, this is I ignored what you said and look what I've built. Look upon the things that I was able to do no matter what you said. Yep. Uh, again, musically, this is great as like this sort of quiet verses and then like a sort of. It's not. It doesn't get super fast, but it's sort of like more fun and like raucous chorus. It's good. This is good. I love this song. Yeah. I, I really think this would have been a stronger single because you get. You can still get a teen angst out of this. You can hit some of the same notes that, so sad to say, didn't go all in on. And it's something different. I'm very much of the opinion that when you bring out the new record, you should probably try something different for a single to catch people's ear. And again, like this sounds good, even if you don't think about the lyrics. This has like a lot of gravitas behind it. Mm-hmm. It's very dramatic, but also like fun. There's also like that fun, like post chorus with the horns. So it's it's a good mix. Horns are always fun. Also, just because I'm thinking about it, and because I will probably not get the chance to tell this story for any other reason on this show, the peak do something different and draw something in move that I can recall from singles in my lifetime is that I start hearing a band. And it's got Bobby Womack doing the vocals, just a good, funky section in between slow bass line and synth work. And I went, who the hell is this? And the track ends and they go, that was the new single by the Gorillas." And I went, I'm on fucking board. And I pre-ordered Plastic Beach that week. Yeah, Stylo is a great track. It's like, that's the kind of thing you can do if you cut out of your usual zone and just go look what we can do we got a good guest we got a new producer this is a sound that's in our catalog you want to come and see more and i could see in that point of view why this would have made a good single i think especially when you're under mercury which was like a major label at the time before being bought by universal uh, i could see why they would be skeptic about putting out something this weird for a single. I suppose, but it doesn't mean I have to like it. I will backseat quarterback from the future all I want. I guess it's a Monday morning quarterback. Backseat quarterback sounds like the worst position. You just ride horsey on the back of the quarterback? I think that's what the guy who holds the water thing up on the cart when they're driving it out to the field is called, a backseat quarterback. Okay. I never watched a football game in my life. I don't know the rules of football. I just know the quarterbacks are important in high school for some reason. Yes, quarterback is uh, the amount you have to spend to become the prom king. Okay, cool. You are now learned on America. Yay, USA, USA. (laughs) (laughs) See, you'll be able to pass that immigration exam anytime. Over the eggshell is the next song.
love it. This is thrashy. It is. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like ska offsprings with less boomery lyrics, which is weird because they're older than the offsprings and they sound less like fucking angry middle-aged dads. But this this just has such a very unique to this point. <laughs> this is an aggressive track. I love it. Yeah, no, it's really good. It's just like, again, it's sort of like alt-rocky meets punk meets ska. Just like a fun rock song. Super fun. The, the, I, I describe it in my uh, notes as damn listenable. It's very listenable. Yes. How many tracks have we had that could really be just this aggressive in the middle of an album that wasn't already going to middle fingers at all times? Because we've had some thrash stuff. Have we had a genre shift this hard in the middle of one yet? The whole of the lit record is a living genre shift. Lit doesn't count. We don't like them. Oh, right. <laughs> I'm still amazed that's not the worst thing we've listened to and weirdly interesting. Yeah. It, yeah, the one about the car was good. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, the, the lit record, it's, it's a weird artifact of the 90s that aside from them, like killing a person, which is... Uh, but I think that record is interesting. I don't think it's good. I think it's interesting. To be fair to the lit brothers, who in 2020 hasn't killed a person, even by proxy? <laughs> Do you eat quinoa? You've killed a person. <laughs> you a fan of the chocolate sauce? You've probably killed a person. <laughs> How do you feel about almonds? There's a reason why we're going back in time to the 2000s. Fletch. <laughs> All I'm saying is that I cannot throw the first stone. Well, I will throw it then. Fuck you, Lit. Okay. Yeah, you, you can do that. I can't. See, Fletch, now you can throw the second stone. There's no barrier in the way. That's true. There are no biblical rules about the second stone. Anyhow, over the eggshell. Damn listenable song. I like it. It's just like, has very offspring energy, but with horns, which make everything better. Yeah, love the aggression. Like the message, too. Sometimes you just gotta be like, fuck it, I am done walking on eggshells. What took it to the city was some sort of scholarship Some fancy New York fashion institute Her junkie boyfriend took to crime Which took up too much of her time It only took a year until she took a different route What just happened? She just happened, she just happened It crossed my mind Without warning she crossed my mind What just happened to me? Again, I feel this record is very well structured because then we go to She Just Happened, which is a nice change in sound that sort of helps you getting through a record that's fairly long. But there's a nice shift in sound, something more mellow. This is another story song. I don't think this is great, but I think the concept of having a song like this at this point in the record is good because we've had a bunch of like poppy song and then like a harder song and then you come down a bit with this song. This is sort of like a upbeat, chill story song about a girl. It's almost like, almost reminded me of Billy Joel in a way. 
Uh, it's very, it's very quaint. I don't think it's great. I think the story sort of goes nowhere, which is sort of the point of the song, but... Eh, but this is good. It's fine. It's fine structurally. This is probably one of my bottom songs of the record, but it's fine structurally. There's also like some good, uh, at least the first two verses I feel are really good in a songwriting way. There's a lot of detail to them. And in that way that, you know, bands like the Mountain Goats will do later, which is like you have a lot of like specific details to anchor your songwriting and to build imagery. Ellie, you just like it when they drop the names of places and songs. Yeah, <laughs> I do. She Just Happened feels to me like the kind of track that someone will have children slowly cover in a movie trailer. This could be a dirge that introduces us to the next Tyler Perry film in five years. Oh, I was thinking more about like a horror film. Like you'd have the creepy slowdown cover. Oh no, like... it's not just for horror films anymore. I mean, we had the Dune trailer this week and it had a sort of slower cover of Pink Floyd that worked really well. The only thing I know about Dune is the David Lynch film, which was great. There was a naked sting in it, which is a plus. Y'all have experience with Dune? Oh, yes. Nerds. As an older male, of course, I know Dune intimately. <laughs> like the crevices of the dunes in the wind. <laughs> As a fan oh, of David Lynch, I I've watched exactly one rendition of Dune. The good one. The proper one. I haven't read the book. I'm going to say that the film is way better of the book without re reading them. So people can yell at me. Yeah, I'll yell at you. Mm, I'm a Lynch fan, and even I'm biting back an urge to yell at you. You're cancelled, Ellie. Sorry. Yay! USA! USA! <laughs> yeah, that is actually incredibly US of you. Ah. <laughs> uh. Finally, she's free. Finally, the next track. And again, the horn section does a hard rock riff, but on the horns. It's fun. It's another fun song with good energy. Aggressive horns. Yeah, aggressive horns. The choruses could be stronger, but... And the guitar work is a bit weak, mostly in the production side. I think it's mixed a bit muddy. It doesn't really pop. But the song is good. It's well written. It's a good song. I feel, this is the point where I feel this record would work a lot better live than on record. Like, I feel a lot of the very bare production sort of doesn't work on record, but I think this is like, would be like great energy live. I think you know, this is... you, you have a very good point there. I don't think about that often enough, but yeah, I bet this album is a thing that would be a hell of a show. Yeah. I agree. Uh, I thought of this track as more of a, this would be the kind of thing that I was amazed had not been used as the track that is playing at a college party in some 2000s comedy. Right? 
that's the energy it comes off as. It's a little harder. It's got the guitars. It's not going to give the same vibes as if we just start playing a random NSYNC B-side in the scene. This means this is one of the frat parties. Yeah, I like it. Fun. Fun. I know more, which I think is one of the weakest tunes on this song. It's still fun, it's just like, you know, excellent horns. This song is probably one of the bottom, just straight up, like, ska fan poppy songs in terms of melody and composition. I thought this one was interesting. This seems like, to me, if you were trying to do a psych rock ska fusion. What? Like a psychedelic rock. Yeah, no, I, I know what psych rock is. I didn't, I didn't get that feeling, but go with on. With the opening and the fact that they're playing around with the guitar in a few places on the track, sort of, it had kind of an inverted sound in places to me. The opening to me just sounds like an anime opening, I'll be honest. I mean, is that really that different from what Fletch said? I don't think many, many anime open with psychedelic rock. No. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> you're not going to hear Hug a Broomstick at the start of uh, anything. Like Naruto is not going to begin with Don't Let the Sun Shine Into Your Grave. It should, but it's not going to. God, wouldn't that be sick? <laughs> yeah, no. I, chop, chop, everyone. Get on it. Jojo Part 6, ending theme. The night the pee man couldn't pee. I mean, that would make sense for JoJo, considering how many band names are featured in that thing. That's true. But, uh, yeah, I I like it. This one, I think this is probably one of my favorite tracks on the album, just because it's a combination of sounds I hadn't thought of before, and it works for me. Okay. I didn't, I didn't quite catch that, but I am glad you enjoyed it. And please write to us, listener, if if you agree that this is Yusuf's psychedelic rock sounds or if you know some psychedelic ska for me gimme i can recommend <laughs> you a prog ska band which is you your did ir- you did recommend that one to me and i have been enjoying that album yeah the rx bandits and the battle begun yeah i bought that album in Bandcamp sale last week when they did the artist nice. cheer anyhow the next song from this record is riot on broad street which is another story song with sort of like an irish folk vibe to me, Boston's greedy history, another ruthless battle in a useless holy war. Handed down discrepancies and tensions that'll never ease. One of the afternoon on Broad Street it blew up down there for sure. Flogging Molly, flogging Molly. Yep, it, it is a flogging Molly song. That 100% a flogging Molly track. 
before I listened to the album, when you said, oh, there's a song about how capitalism will inevitably eat itself, I was expecting it to be this song based on the title. This was about a brawl that occurred in Boston between Irish Americans and Yankee firefighters. I am reading from Wikipedia here because I did extensive, aside from Wikipedia research from the band, I did not do extensive, aside from Wikipedia research about this riot. So, I can tell you that this was a fight that happened between Irish Americans and firefighters. It'd be like that sometimes. You're telling me a song from abandoned Boston is about Irish history, a brawl, <laughs> and has a bit of accordion and folk sound to it. I'll be damned. This is so <laughs> shocking. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All it needs is to just swing with a potato in its mouth and just complete the <laughs> trifecta. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. Apparently, this song, Wikipedia informs me that this song is not uh, historically accurate. There are discrepancies between the actual brawl and what is sung in the song. Oh my goodness. So shocking. Well, clearly what needs to happen is, rather than listen to a song about it, we need to find a podcast about the Broad Street Riot, because that's how you learn things in the 2020s. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, chop chop, let's get to it. <laughs> Where's that one, Mary Serial? Okay, no, Riot on Broad Street, we were talking about that. It's fine. Again, it's one of those things where it's, this record is very long, and there are a lot of tracks with a very similar vibe, so having this nice different thing happening it's always nice this is not great it's sort of again it's as you mentioned it's a flogging molly song it's sort of like a folkish irish thing but it, it's fine for what it is and it's a song about riots that we don't have to feel bad about listening to in 2020 it's true mm, yeah the last you know handful of riot songs that we've listened to on this podcast were uh yeah Ah, uh, anyhow, one million reasons. This is so sad to say again. Better, though. Interesting. I wrote that about the next track, although my note there was slow, sad to say. This song is better musically, I think. And it's sort of about the same thing. This is about a breakup. We did establish that the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones music is same throughout all their albums, so... I think One Million Reasons is a better tune. That's so sad to say. Like, it has a better chorus. I... I think if I, you put a gun to my head, I would call this the weak track on the album. Really? Mm-hmm. I really like this song. I think the big problem with this song is just the production. I call this the opposite of a wall of sound. This is a thin paper sheet of sound, where, especially in the verse, the production makes this song feel very empty, and this is one of the reasons why I say I feel this would be way better live. But I think, just in terms of composition, this is a really solid track. I think it's fun, it's energetic, it's a bit more high energy than So Sad To Say, but with a similar theme. I, I like this song. 
well, that's incredibly funny because I think the next one is the counterpart, but it's the exact opposite, the slow, dirge-like version of So Sad okay. to Say. And the next song is Bad News and Bad Breaks, if you want to talk about that one. It's a job you can't neglect. It's consequences will look back. I'm glad that I'm not in his shoes. He's the bearer of bad news. So what can you do? He's got an ugly job. This is the one that I think is the counterpoint and sort of like the mirror universe doppelganger. This one has the goatee, and you happily shoot it because it's just such a downer to be around, man. The horns are cool in this one. That's true. I will credit the horns, but I'm gonna be honest. I don't know if I think there's a failure to horn anywhere on this album. Yeah, no, I mentioned it like four times. The brass section of the Mighty Mighty Bosons is top-notch for the genre. They have a lot of energy, they're really creative, they do some interesting parts on the songs, and they're the best part of this record. Yeah, Bad News and Bad Break is weird. It's another one of those songs where the lyrics are so generic that I can't really understand what they're about. Yeah. Is this a story song? Not really. <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> bad news and bad breaks and bad luck. Get out. Yep. Yeah. Temporary trip is great though. I take it this is where we all started to feel like this maybe had a couple too many tracks? Yeah, just a little bit. Just a little bit. It's like, what, 16 tracks and 50 minutes, and I think it could have used being, like, 14 tracks and 40 minutes. But, on the other side, I think Temporary Trip is a good song if you couple it outside the album. It's like a simple story song about the singer meeting, like... Someone who looks like he's like tripping badly on drugs, but then it turns out it's just like lonely. And there is a good like play on that, in that the chorus takes a different meaning after the, the reveal happens that the person is not tripping on drugs. Again, they, they do a, there is not many lyrics in this uh, songs because they write very short songs. But they actually do a lot with the few amount of lyrics that they add. They do. They have a lot of smart, like, turns of phrases and smart concepts going on. This song is just a good nugget of songwriting, I think. Mm -hmm. The Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Brighter than we expected. Uh, absolutely. Hell yeah. I got very similar vibes to you. I specifically thought to myself... I would probably enjoy this song much more if it were in the first half of the album and not the closing stretch. Because it's not bad. I can't fault it, but I'm a little exhausted this far in, and so I'm, I'm kind of taking a little of it out on Temporary Trip. That is completely fair. I think this song is better than most of the other story songs. It's faster, has like a good energy, but 
it does come at a point when you're just like, ah, I would like this record to end eventually, please. Eventually. It's good enough that I recognize there's something here, but I don't have the energy to objectively judge it. That's about where I am on it, too. It's not where you come from, it's more where you go. Second to last track, Where You Come From, or We Get It, You're From Boston. <laughs> I mean, they can have a little happy about where they live as a treat. They can have little a chowder, because <laughs> they're from Boston. <laughs> I mean, yeah. come on. When you start talking about how the world's greatest writers are all drunks and fighters, and that isn't going to change, this could not be more Boston if you started slurring it out doing a JFK voice. I mean, we're still not at the levels of um, Red Dot Chili Peppers, we're from California, but like that's every two songs. But and yeah. Every recording we do on this show, so I can't talk. So again, feel free to throw that first stone. <laughs> stone throne. As opposed to a really cool, like, rock chair. Ellie, are you a wrestling fan or not? Get out the chair made out of rocks. <laughs> uh, anyhow, where do you come from? It's very Boston. It's like a fun, anthemic sing-along song. It's not great. I would judge this uh, differently if it wasn't, like, at the end of this 50 minutes album. At this point, it's sort of like, eh. I do just really enjoy the will you wager on the egg... Is it the egg or are you chicken? Yeah, still some good lines. A pathetic aesthetic in a world less poetic. That's good. That, yeah. No, that yeah. that's solid. The, the chorus is very sing, sing-alongy. It's like so clearly supposed to be like a, as you mentioned, it's very Boston. It's clearly supposed to be like a city anthem, right? It's just like you sing this at the, the baseball show of the Boston Batmans. Oh, no. I do not want to meet the Batman of Boston. Hey, you criming over there? <laughs> <laughs> so, because my ears are broken, I heard that as Boston Batman. Wait, wait, you know what I just realized? We've already had a Boston Batman. Ben Affleck played Batman. Oh, it did. Yep. <laughs> Wicked. I don't know, I'd rather meet Boston Batman than Boston Buttman. <laughs> oh, there are plenty of Boston Buttman, trust me. I have looked on Tinder. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, let's transition from this to the saddest song of the record. How could I forget the day that he didn't die? The day he knew what he was up to, he had this look in his eye. How could I forget? Did you dig up anything about this? I didn't find any stories about this one. No, this is one of the things where, like, it's really easy to find information about songs from more, you know, bigger artists. The Bostons are at that level where you cannot really find... Also, they're not, they do not do many interviews, so I could not really find anything about this one. 
feels very personal. It feels about like the death of someone dear to whoever wrote the song. This one hit me, but I also have some stories like this and people I've lost, so I entirely understand where it's coming from. I think that the lyrics feel very personal and they're very well written. And the story, again, they are surprisingly good songwriters. Yep. I think just like musically at the point where this record gets, I don't think this does anything for the record as a whole listening experience. No, this this is definitely meant to be played on shuffle or as part of a bigger collection. And there's nothing wrong with albums that are designed that way, but because I am a stubborn Irish goat of a man, I will listen to these all in one sitting every time I take notes and do my re-listen. I think structurally this record is very sound, I just think it's too long, and this doesn't help. I think there is thought behind how the track order is built on this record. There are chunks of pop always followed by some really high energy and after the big high energy it sort of come down with something different. I think there are like basically like two or three sections like this in this record and then you close with um, with temporary, not temporary trip, you close with Where You Come From which is a very sing-longy, anthemic song that it's very celebratory and it's a very high point and you close on that high point. I think that's very thought out. It's also fine to put a slower song after the big closing. That's another thing that a lot of records do. I just think this record was too long to do that. And The Day You Didn't Die doesn't quite close the record well for me. But it's too long. I would have cut like four or five cuts from this. I would probably have tossed four tracks. Yeah. That seems reasonable. But yeah, feel free to keep talking about The Day It Didn't Die. I wasn't really into it, but if you were into like, I can see why. It's a really good piece of songwriting, at least. I, like I said, I have stories exactly like this. This one did hit home for me. Because it is exactly the story about you don't forget the day they didn't die. Where th- there's no way I could ever forget him or forget that day. And then the day after that, it was the day after Christmas in his living room, and he died in his house with his wife, but I won't forget the day before the last of his life. It's, it is very... It hits. I think the Boston nature of things really works for them here, because especially with the Pogues flogging Molly, chanting to the fade-out energy of the chorus on this track... It keeps it from being just a complete down note when it's sort of like a wake energy instead. Yeah. This clicked. I am pro the day he didn't die. I'd have to agree. And this closes the record. The end. Anyhow, I enjoyed this record a lot, as mentioned. Yeah. I would repeat some of the things that I said. The horn section is some of the best in the genre at the time. Yeah. Uh, Them moving hardcore punk influences to straight up sort of like oldies hard rock influence on some track is interesting. 
there's some good songwriting there's some good tunes it is long it is too long and some of the production is very i don't know it's very bare and it's the, the sound of some instruments is a bit muddy especially the drums and the guitar don't pop as they should i feel in the mix so mm, but overall this record is great it is sort of destined to live in the shadow of their big record let's face it and i'll be honest let's face it is a better record but this is also really good. If you like any other thing that the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones have done, give a chance to this record. It's good. It's more of that. Yes, pretty good. Hard recommend from me. And I will point out one thing that Ellie did not mention, which is that anytime the tracks sound muddy or mixed strangely, it's because Ben Carr has been miked poorly to do his moves in the studio. Is it, is it, what? When he's, when he's dancing. Oh, okay. You gotta have the energy of the dance. Right, right. That makes sense. That makes sense. I can see how that might muddy the water. Yeah, I think that this is the first album that we've listened to that I'm actually going to, like, willingly go back and listen to again later for fun. So, you know. Nice. Yeah, I am debating picking this up. I might grab Let's Face It instead and maybe come back to this, but this is good. I can't fault this. I just think it's too much. So in my ranking, I'm going to do this. I don't think this will survive if we get to like the 100 episode. But in my ranking, I'm going to say best thing we'll just send on the show, Clarity by Jimmy Edward. Second best, The Get Up Kids. And I feel this record and Animal of the State sort of fight for the third place. I think this record wins in terms of personal enjoyment. Adam of the State was probably like more influential and more like important as a record, but I think this just about beats Animals of the State as something that I enjoy more. Here's another idea for a bonus down the line. Every so often we just review the list of what we've covered and go, where does that go? <laughs> <laughs> Stack rank albums from pop punk and ska bands. Mm-hmm. Or another bonus episode, we rank all of the records from our chart without listening to them. Oh, God. If we really want to get some hate mail. <laughs> what do you mean Phoenix TX is only third from the bottom? <laughs> Honestly, Phoenix TX is not the worst record that we listened to. I don't know how that happened. We keep being surprised. Which was the worst one? I think the SR71 record is the worst thing. Like... On a purely musical level, it's way worse than the Phoenix TX record, I think. That's fair. Yes. Give me a top three of what we have color, both Adam and Fletch. I would definitely say Jimmy Eat World, Suicide Machines, and I'm going to go with this. Yeah, Boss Tones. Okay. Adam? I didn't listen to the Jimmy Eat World album, so it's not in the running. Um, So I'd have to say that this one has to be at the top. The Suicide Machines by The Suicide Machines was, like, good, I guess. And, uh, da, 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 da. What else is there? Bad Religion. Oh, yeah, that one. I was trying to remember the name. I couldn't remember it. That one. Okay. The New America. Okay. Yeah, you, you need to go back and listen to Clarity, Adam. That record is so good. There's a reason it jumped to the top of our list with a bullet. I've been listening to some of the newer stuff that Jimmy at Work's been doing, like Surviving. It's all right. Mm -hmm. I think Clarity is still better. I think Clarity is great. But Diamond is my favorite track on Surviving. I think it's a really solid rock song. It is unbreakable. Yeah, and it is forever. Huh. <laughs> huh. 
Live and let die. Uh. <laughs> Sorry. The man with the golden gun? <laughs> Moonraker. He loves only moon. Anyhow, before we die and become a specter... <laughs> Damn it. Let's go to what happened after this record. So following this record, their trombone player becomes Chris Rhodes from Springheel Jack, which we are only mentioning because of the bonus episode we just recorded. Yeah, in the bonus episode, we mentioned the Springheel Jack. Uh, they were the guys that tried to replace the titular name in a song about their turban with the name of the protagonist of Drew Barrymore's film Never Been Kissed and tried to sell it to the film as a soundtrack and they failed, of course. Yeah, I'm just mentioning that because I've been really into that band. I've been listening to the record where the song is from, Jolene, which is a banger, by the way. It's a really good song. And that band is great. And I'm happy that uh, after they broke up, the part of the brass section went with the Mighty Mighty Bowstones. Chris Rhodes is with the Bowstones to today. Also, the album in question you did not mention the name of is Songs from Suburbia. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's good ska pop punk records. But... Pay Attention heralded a shift for the band because it's not so stellar follow-up to their big hit and Mercury restructuring after being acquired by Universal leads the label and band to mutually agree to dissolve their contract. One more record will be recorded through independent label Side One Dummy before they go on hiatus, but that is a story for next time as that record is going to chart and we will have words to say about it. Yay! See you in 2002, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Good keeping on. Same song, different chorus. And this was Gotta Get Out of the Town, a 2000 pop punk and emo pop retrospective. You can find us at getoutofthestown.com. If you have something to say, and please, if you listen to this podcast, send us a mail. We will read it on air a month after it arrives to us, because we're on delay. But we will read it on air. We feel lonely. Write to us. Getoutofthistownpodcast at gmail.com is our address. Or you can just at us on Twitter at ggottpodcast. Follow us there, too. You can, of course, find us everywhere. iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, especially if you're on iTunes rate and review us that stuff helps Um, we have some spotify playlists if you go on our website there is one that's just like stuff from this record there is a modern emo playlist that i made if y'all are into like more modern pop punk stuff and yeah bunch of stuff if you go on our website there's even the spreadsheet where you can find all of uh, the upcoming episodes next up we are dealing with eve six's horror scope so, see you next week. This was the episode. Do you have anything to plug, Fletch? You can find me, as always, with a list of all my ongoing projects and various writings at hellscaper.com. Do you have anything to plug, Adam? 
Nope. And you can find me on Twitter at ACCTheMoon. And if you want to support us, we don't have a Patreon, but we are currently on the lookout for a full-time dancer to join our podcast, so if you want to turn on your microphone and dance for two hours while we record without uttering a word, send us a shout. Good night, everyone. See ya. Bye. Not like I've got the time to stick around. I'll catch my flight like a pop pocket and get out of this town. What's on your mind? There's no point left to keep your image down. Let's terrify. And he tries to attempt a segue. A segue fails horribly. That's all right. Everyone stumbles on a Segway. You should use hoverboards instead. Much safer. Those explode, though. <laughs> That's part of the joke. I'm just saying, nobody ever detonated a Segway. Is that a challenge? <laughs> challenge accepted. And welcome back to Get Off of This Thing, a podcast where two of my co-hosts are riding flaming vehicles. Don't worry, Fletch. I'm going to do it not in the state of California. <laughs>